1: You
0: have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver,
3: and Al Warren, heard on KCB. 106.5 FM
1: Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and one hundred five
0: oh
3: AM Palm Springs.
2: Now, I never realized, but there is a Stonehenge USA.
3: Yeah, I didn't until until, um, I I realized who we were interviewing, and I had a look, and I was amazed. Fantastic.
2: So so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about that. We're going to find out what it is, where it is, and what happens there. And so, uh, joining us today is Dennis Stone. How are you doing, Dennis?
4: Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me on today.
2: So, Dennis Stone, did you change your last name to work the Stonehead?
4: <laughs> uh, we get that we get that question asked all the time, but that's always been our name. So I guess it's kind of preordained or something, you know. But that's our name. You could always <laughs> just
2: add it to your name. <laughs> but it's appropriate Yeah, that'd be a novelty
4: so, um, now,
2: so um, I don't know where to start here so where did um, let's figure out, first of all where you got involved with Stonehenge and in America and uh, um, how it came about
4: oh yeah, Uh, my dad actually Robert Stone got involved with it back uh, almost 65 years ago back in 1955 he was a um, AT&T, Western Electric, Bell Laboratories, engineer, you know, uh, kind of into the tech stuff. But he was always very, very interested in the past. He was interested in Native Americans. He was interested uh, in the Vikings coming to the Americas and that kind of thing. And he had just got out of the Coast Guard and he started his new career with AT&T. lasted there about 30 years. And he had a new family. Um, I was about one year old. And um, he was listening to a radio show, just like we're doing right now, uh, one of the biggest stations out of Boston. And it's still there today. And on a Friday night, they were talking about these strange stone, stone ruins, which were located only about eight miles from where he lived. He, like you and Julie, he had never heard of this place, and he lived basically next door to it. And it was quite a surprise to hear this talk show. You know, it was probably a couple hours talking about these strange ruins. You know, and what they could be, who built them, why they were there, and it really kind of hooked my dad. Um, and right after that, coincidentally, he was at a barbershop, shop. Uh, a couple days later, looking at a magazine, waiting to have his hair cut. And as he opened it up and flipped through the pages, there is a whole article featured about the same site he just heard on the radio. So two things in one week about this site. Uh, that following weekend, he's at my aunt and uncle's. He actually, uh, took the magazine from the barbershop with the barbershop permission. It was actually a three-year-old magazine. It had been in the barbershop for three years. It was 1952 when they, when it came out. And, uh, they were getting together just to have a social evening and probably uh, playing cards, having some beer, you know, on a Saturday night, there were about 10 or 12 of them. And uh, my dad actually took the magazine at one point, put it on the table in front of everybody, and passed it around. Anybody know what this place is or ever hear of it? And everybody kind of looked at it. Nobody knew what it was until it got to my aunt and uncle. And they looked at it, and all of a sudden they kind of like, Oh, wow, we used to go there in the 1930s uh, on our bicycles when my aunt and uncle were dating. Uh, they went down and they picnicked at this particular place. So it was kind of You know, my dad was quite surprised. And that following Sunday, they got together, the four of them, my dad, mom, my aunt, and uncle. They got in a car, and they drove down trying to find a place It was not open to the public. It was on a hill in the deep woods, and they drove around trying to find some sort of, you know, avenue or entrance to the place. And they finally found an old dirt road, and they went up on the site. And my dad spent some time, because there's a big chain link fence around the main part of the site, which is about one acre where most of the stone ruins but it's about 110 acre site altogether. So he walked, got underneath the fence. It was locked up at the time and he spent quite a bit of time. And after he came out, the rest of them were standing, standing outside waiting for him. So what do you think? And he goes, this place is amazing. So it was really my dad, you know, and he died about nine years ago. Um, and so it's always been in my family and I'm the second generation and I have a son named Kelsey. He's going to turn 30 next month and he's an engineer like my dad. And he's kind of involved with it too, so it's kind of a kind of a family affair for about sixty-five years.
2: <clears throat> so, do we know how old this 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 area is, and and uh, what what where it came from, like who built it, or or any of the real history like that?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, how old the site is, um, and the work on the site actually began in the nineteen thirties. Uh, from the time my aunt and uncle first visited. And the work has been continuing, uh, for eight years now, or actually going on its 82nd year of research. We've taken 12 radiocarbon datings, uh, of, of the site. We've also surveyed the, uh, what we call the astronomical alignments. And that's what makes it functionally similar to Stonehenge. The farm is different when you look at it, but it has these big standing stones all around the outside probably about 500 feet from the main site, and there's actually a center where all the alignments come together, for solstices, equinoxes, cross-quarter days, lunar alignments, like Stonehenge, actually. And um, so the work on that began in 1967, but by 1977, uh, we had done a couple years of survey using a professional surveyor, and that information was sent to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the next year, the results came back, and they said, well, if those alignments were used for that purpose, to watch a sun or moon or a star alignment, they don't quite work today, but they would work about 1800 B.C. And one of the carbon datings, actually 1971, which is, I think, the fourth or fifth carbon dating we had taken on the site, actually dated part of the site back to about 4,000 years. So that was in 71, and by 1978, we get the results back astronomically that kind of agreed with it, that radio carbon dating. So I think the site's about 2,000 B.C., about 4,000 years old. Um, and Stonehenge in England, as you was saying, goes back at the beginning, I think, around 5,000 years, and it took about 1,500 years to build. And like Stonehenge, we think it's kind of a tomb, temple, and monument complex, not a place where people lived. It was more of a place where people probably worshipped and ceremonies were performed. It's on a big hill. And, uh, it's more like some of the other megalithic sites. There are about 50,000 of them in Western Europe, so Stonehenge being the most famous. But it's not the oldest nor the, you know, the, the um the biggest, if you will. And they actually stretch into Russia, China, India, Korea, Australia. They're finding megalithic type sites in Australia and in South America. So they're on six continents, and we have about 800 of them in the northeast. Uh, from Canada, right through the mid-Atlantic states over the last 80 years, they've detected, found, recorded, photographed, um, and done excavations on some of these, not all of them. But we think our site is just one of about 800. And when my dad got involved in 1955, I think they knew of about 12 of these sites in the Northeast. So they're actually, they're actually all over the place. And, uh, I was maybe the most known in America as being kind of a megalithic type site. But it's still not well-known like Stonehenge in England, of course. I mean, it's just world famous.
3: Yeah. Are there any other similarities, Dennis? Because um, with um, over the many, many years, obviously, with the interest in Stonehenge in, in Wiltshire in the U.K., um, in the UK they, they, have, um, they found a reliable year-round spring, for example, so there's a water supply. They found that there's um, long barrow tombs in the surrounding landscape so is there anything like that with your stonehenge on the, on the outskirts the periphery of the set of the stones themselves
4: um we do have some chambers that are very similar to some of the particular structures like we have a structure called the v hut it looks like a v as the letter v is in victor um okay. and it's facing the southwest it's the only structure on the site that's not orientated north south east and west out of true north and to the late uh, Polaris is over Trudor, 4,000 years ago, it was a stock called cuban. It looks very much like the wedge tombs I've seen in Ireland and the all face southwest. And if you look at – I've been to Spain, but I didn't get a chance to see some of the megalithic ruins in Spain. They are pretty phenomenal there, too, in Portugal, too. But they have similar structures. They look like a wedge tomb. And I'm trying to still find out more about them to find the size and the orientation. But I'm like, that looks like a wedge tomb of Ireland, but it also looks like our V-Hut. And next to our V-hut on the main site, there's a structure called the galley or gallery. We call it the east-west chamber, but it looks like a gallery or galley grid. In Holland, they call them the giant's bed. They're always orientated true east and west, again, out of true north. And they run 20 to 60 feet. And it looks like our east-west chamber, but they're in northwest Ireland. And I've been to Ireland, but I didn't get that part of Ireland, unfortunately. But I did see them in France near Carnac, which is pretty famous. And they had the same kind of structure with upright slabs and then stone roofs on top, just like our site has all these gigantic stones that create the roof, kind of like the Flintstones house, if you will, but they're not houses. We think they're, you know, like I mentioned, tombs, temples, and monuments. Um, But the orientation, the size and the shape of some of the structures, not only at our site, but throughout the Northeast, looks so much like what you see throughout the megalithic sites of Europe. You know, you can actually look at them and say, oh, that looks like this chamber. This, that looks like, They're so. the comparison's amazing, you know, so you have to look at the size, the shape, and the orientation of these structures, and they're either one heck of a coincidence, or there's some sort of transatlantic, you know, crossing at some time in the past. And recently, I just read a brand new thing. The theory is now that megal- me- megalithic sites actually started in France, and then they spread out by boat across the Mediterranean, and also into uh, Scandinavia in Germany, and the British Isles from France. And that's... This this came up on the web the other day. In the 1970s, a lot of people thought some of these megalithic sites were independent invention. People didn't weren't in contact with one another. It's just a coincidence all across Europe. You know, a lot of these are just independently created without people in communication. That was in the 70s, maybe in the 80s. And now the latest was by a, la- a woman. I forget her what her title is and where she's from uh, and her name. I just forgot that too. But She's putting this, you know, this whole theory. She has like 2,400 carbon dating she's looked at. She had to speak, go in, talk to people in 11 different languages and get the translation because they're all over Europe. And it took years to put this together, but she thinks the fusion was going on. People going by boats, spreading this technology all around Europe, probably into Russia and further, you know. So, um, so there is a similarity.
3: And what about the actual. Physical presentation. Mm. So um, Stonehenge here has like 30 enormous sarsen and stones and they're in a, in a kind of semicircle mm. um, or a circle with the stones across the top. And is that a similar for those people listening now who haven't got access immediately to, to your website to see yeah. pictures? What's what it like there?
4: Yeah, the 30, yeah, the 30, uh, I believe the sarsens, I guess it's 29 and a half representing the 29 and a half. Uh, days of the lunar month, you know, one of the uprights is actually a half-size one, I guess, but that stonehenge is so unique, you know, it's so unique among the megalithic sites of Europe, it's amazing, I mean, it has a henge, you know, the bank and dish, it had the, uh, blues, mm-hmm. the blue stones from Wales, and then the and the sarsen stones, but of the 50,000, really, there are circles, I mean, Engl- uh, England and Wales have about 800, and Scotland has about 800 stone circles. As you know, it's really amazing what Stonehenge looks like, especially with the lintel stones on top. Our site looks more like, I mentioned, other megalithic sites. We have a monolith, which is a single standing stone. The sun will rise over the top of that stone or set kind of like the heel stone at Stonehenge, but many of those, you know, surrounding the whole site. They look like large arrowheads. They vary from about uh, probably 6 feet up to about 10 feet in length, and one of them is actually 14 feet long. We call it a here or a long stone. So, and that's what they use uh, for a term in Europe too, or men here um, but our site you'd have to look at other sites you know to see the similarity Stonehenge functionally is just like us you know it has a cross quarter the quarter days the lunar alignments but the form of it's different than our site and other sites in Europe and as well as over here Stonehenge I think is all by itself in its shape really you know it's amazing
2: so so when you um, when you uh, so you say it was a place of probably worship or or something, mm-hmm. and um, you have a sacrificial table. And I know that picture got put up on our website. Um, maybe explain what what do you think that's from? Like what 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 do you mean by sacrificial table?
4: Well, uh, we think it it could be an altar stone. It could be for ceremonial purposes. Yeah, it's roughly nine feet long and about six feet wide. It looks like a bell, kind of shaped like a big bell, if you will. Uh, we, we know the quarry site that it came out of. It's about 40 feet away. They actually picked up this 45, uh, it's about a 9,000 pound stone, 4.5 tons, and they moved it about 40 feet, and then they set it up on four legs. And adjacent to that, uh, that stone slab is the Oracle Chamber, which is the biggest structure still remaining on the site. It's uh, just under 30 feet long. It runs true north, north and south. Uh, it has a branch that goes off to the east about just under 20 feet. If you look down at it and you could remove the roof, it would look like a Y, I guess, kind of a shape. Um, But uh, the sacrificial table, the groove on it, is actually roughly four by six feet, and it's trapezoid in shape. And we're finding a couple of the chamber floor plans are trapezoid in shape. We used to think that was a rectangular shape on the table, but we measured it, and it's about nine inches shorter at the top than it is at the bottom. So significantly a uh, trapezoid.
2: So now, do, were, were there bones and bodies found there or anything like that?
4: Well, in New England, the, uh, the soil is very acidic. We have a problem with that. Um, I did, did Mag, I, my dad was a member of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society, and I get all the publications. And the president of the group has actually done work on our site for 30 years. She's really well known in the, this whole region as a, you know, uh, for her archaeological work. Um, but uh, between what i talked to her about this and also what I've read in the journals and everything, they have found a few pieces of bones in New Hampshire, for instance, going back over a couple thousand years. But it's very rare because the soil is very acidic. It eats up the bones. And usually two or three hundred years, the bones are gone. Occasionally, you'll find bones in uh, either peat or maybe like clay or some other material that kind of preserves them. But you can pretty much count most of the bones will dissolve. When the work began on our site in the 1930s, the gentlemen that worked on it used the be- best techniques they had available at the time. But they would get it and they would dig. They would sift. They would look for artifacts you could hold in your hand. Today, that soil that came out of those structures is as important as any artifact that would come out of the chambers. Because they would take that soil, send it to a laboratory, and they could do the chemical analysis on it. And this might yield information saying, yes, this was a burial. We have the chemical traces of, you know, like a human burial here or something like that. But 80 years, over 80 years ago, that soil was cleaned out. We got pictures before, going back to 1920, 15 years, 16 years before the archaeology began. People were up here taking pictures, fortunately. You can see this dirt in the structures. And then when this gentleman, Mr. Goodwin, got there in 1936, began excavating in 1937. He died in 1950, so in between those years, you were doing excavation and some repair work on the site, you know in diagramming the site and all of that, the dirt's missing today. It was just taken, sifted, and it's off to the side now, um, which is a shame, you know. But that's the problem with archaeology. When you dig a hole, you disturb it pretty much forever. So today they usually leave an area untouched for future archaeologists, but that methodology wasn't there, you know, over 80 years ago. So um, they did find a couple bones on the site, though, and one of them was central museum. They looked at it in 1970, and they said it looked like it was human. They didn't carbon date it, and to be honest with you, I've looked for that fragment in some of our files, and I haven't been able to locate it yet. It still may be there, but I'm not sure it's even with us because it was sent away. I'm not sure if it ever came back in 1970. I'm still looking for some information that might, you know, uh, tell us that, you know, which would be interesting. They can do a lot more with DNA and all this stuff today. So. <clears throat>
2: Now I was going to ask you about the ast- astronomical alignments as well. Like, um, were they were the stones set up in a particular way that uh, you can tell?
4: Yeah, even eighty years ago, Mister Goodwin and other people up there knew way out in the woods and was all covered with the forest that there were these upright stones, kind of a mystery. Why would anybody build all these thousands of feet of stones and then have all these arrowhead stones way out in the middle of the woods? Um, And so the work on that began in 1967. And the reason for that is, uh, there was a book called Stonehenge Dakota by Gerald Hopkins. And he was with the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics and I think Boston College. And he wrote that book in 65. And CBS did a special about Stonehenge called, I think, The Mysteries of Stonehenge. So that really, you know, really got the interest, uh, among our researchers and my dad including uh, that maybe some of these stones out there had a meaning. Why would somebody go out there and quarry these big pieces of stone off the bedrock and they've been shaped like an arrowhead, which is uh, now today we know that they were shaped or dressed using a technique called percussion flaking. It's stone against stone to shape them. And um, why would they go to all that trouble and stand them up on the walls? Farmers in New England started building walls in the 1700s to clear fields of rock Usually tumbled, rounded-type rocks, not big slabs necessarily. There are a few that glaciers would pull out of the bedrock, but generally rounded kind of rocks and big glacial boulders. But our walls contain all these slabs of stone, and these slabs are actually intentionally removed from the bedrock and then positioned into the wall as some of these sanding stones. Today we know as the astronomical marker stones. And, yeah, there is a pattern. There's about 26 alignments that we have at the site. And they don't quite work today, except for the equinoxes, due to the Earth's tilt. The Earth's tilt is about 23 degrees, 26 minutes. It changes about one minute, one-sixtieth of a degree every century. And Sir Norman Lockyer, back I think 100 years ago in England, he saw this, and he said, I wonder if there's a way that we can actually date these sites, because it seems to be an era where the sun sets over these alignments. It's off a little bit today. He said, I think we could probably figure out how old these sites are, you know, if we can determine when they work, when these alignments work, you know, and what the rate of tilt change was. They called it obligity. So he was on that 100 years ago. And today with all the computers and everything, you know, I mean, you could probably do it on your smartphone. There are all these different types of apps. I can actually use one of them and go back 20-something thousand years, and I can see what the uh, the sunrise and sunset looked like in the past, what the signs of the zodiac are as the, Earth, the precession, which is 20. 26,000-year cycle versus the 41,000-obligity cycle. These two cycles are going on very slowly over time. So any ancient site will be off a little bit for the solstices and for the lunar alignments, but the equinox, it still works. So it's a great way of dating a site, I think. You know, it will back up carbon dating and other techniques they use, too.
2: So was there a Mm -hmm. lot of... um folk tales or old, old tales about that that area or old uh, stories that, that, that we know about now?
4: There are a few, yeah. The History of Salem was written in 1907, and the guy was a friend of Robert Frost, actually, and his name was Edgar Gilbert. The book came out in 1907, and our site is in that, and he said that about 70 years ago, Patty family lived up there, and, and uh, some of the stone chambers still exist today, and it's a weird, but... A wild, uh, wild and wonderful place where fantastic uh, tales can be woven among the uh, soft pine and the rough boulders. But we also heard uh, stories that Native Americans tended to shy away from the place. They thought these kind of sites were taboo, kind of a place they didn't want to go to. That's one of the things I've heard over the years, you know. And then a woman named Paula Runder, which she lived in California, but she was Iroquois. And she had to learn 10,000 years of her family's world tradition her grandfather taught her this and she had to repeat it back a couple of different ways so she had the story straight for all those, you know, thousands of years. And in, in the oral tradition she said, uh, they talk about in the, and she's in California, she never, I guess she didn't never, she never lived in the northeast part where the Iroquois would have been the Great Lakes and part of New York, that area. And maybe, and actually visiting into the New England area, the ancient tribes would. But they talked about these hills with these stone ruins, and that it was a strange people that built them, but not their, not her people, not her Iroquois, you know, relatives or ancestors. And living in California, she like you, you know, never heard about our place before. Or some of the other stone ruins in New England. She finally became aware in the 1990s of these, possibly from a TV show or maybe the internet, you know. And she got, oh my gosh, this actually makes sense. So she has a book that's about three inches called The Walking People, and it's got the 10,000 years of tradition. And, and again, it's kind of mentioned in there, you know, that uh, it was a different people, not her people. It was kind of a strange people that built these stone ruins, you know, in the Northeast. So it's one of those tales, you know, or, or stories. And oral tradition can be, you know, pretty accurate, you know. They take it as history, actually, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah, it comes from something. It comes from a <clears throat> truth, you yeah. know. Something, um, yeah,
4: right. Well,
2: yeah. So I was just wondering, uh, now, uh, I know it's not your strong point you were saying, but um, so there is a paranormal connection to the to the Stonehenge as well, or is it just kind of um, is that more just folklore?
4: Well, uh, there are, you know, we've had people visit our site over the years. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Hans Holzer. He was a gentleman that wrote uh, like Ghost I've Met. He was on, he's been on, like, he has passed away, but he uh, had been on TV shows like Good Morning America, you know, and but Hans Holzer visited us first time in 1971. In 74, he brought up four different psychics separately that didn't know each other. And he wrote a book in 1992, about 20 years after that event. And I was just reading it again this year because I hadn't seen it for years. And um, the four different psychics, uh, the names of, of the people and what, what they felt up at the site. And one of the things they're trying to discover, you know, who were the people that built the site, how old the site was, what was, what was it used for, you know. And they all came out with similar kind of, um, you know, um, responses, I guess, or what they sensed, you know, was similar. It was kind of interesting. You know, what they said was very similar, even though they didn't talk. And they came up four different uh, uh, different times in the year to visit our site. And uh, Hans Holzer came back in 74 with those psychics. And then two years
5: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
4: Later, he came back, and he actually uh, had written a script for running Nemois in search of, the, I think we were number two on the 144 episodes. Um, and I think he gets a little bit into the psychic on that show, too. He interviews my dad, my uncle. Um, my uncle Oz, and a number of other researchers from a group called New England Antiquities Research Association. So I think I'd have to look at that video again because I think he mentions a little bit about the paranormal and that. We um, have had paranormal, um, you know, in the fall, usually in October, we had paranormal groups come up to our site. And I'm as I mentioned, I just retired from the airlines after 35 years. My best schedules that I could bid each month were usually working Friday through Mondays to get the best schedules. So I usually missed all the Saturday night, uh, what we call ghost walks or paranormal events. Uh, so I wasn't there for almost every one of them I missed, unfortunately. But I'm retired now, so maybe that will change a little bit. Um, so we have had thousands of at our site, too. Um, we had um, Francis Hitching and John Mitchell. And they're from England, I think, both of them. And they were at our place in 1978. And they wrote about uh, the site and how they doused the water lines. You stone. some of our stone walls actually overlay the water lines. And then the, uh, the ley lines are the astronomical alignments. And six years ago, my son, Kelsey, was looking at Google Earth and just going out to where some of the other uh, New England sites to see if they were on a line, you know, on the same line as some of the solstices or equinox alignments. And one of them, uh, the Somersaults to Sunrise, which is a beautiful stone, it's shaped actually to fit the horizon about five miles away. There's two hills that come together in a notch, and the stone actually was shaped to fit into that notch. It kind of fits right into it. So if you're watching the sunrise, you'll see the stone and the horizon, and the sun will rise 90 degrees to that little notch on the top of the rock and the horizon five miles away. Well, he followed that line right across New England, and across uh, Nova Scotia, right across. The, and then he said, well, I'll just go across the ocean and see where it comes out. And it came out in southern England. And we've been to Stonehenge. Uh, well, he's been there a couple of times. I've been there probably half a dozen times. And he said, geez, this looks kind of familiar. It looks like it's in the Stonehenge area. So he changed the scale, and as he blew it up, eventually Stonehenge appears on Google Earth, and there it is. And the line goes right through under the large trilithons, right through the, right through the center of it. And, uh, you know, anybody can try it. But it's not Google Maps, Google Earth. And so that when you're watching the summer solstice sunrise at our site, if you had Superman vision or something and could see around the world on that straight line, it would actually go right through the center of Stonehenge. Some of the other astronomical alignments are like the winter solstice sunset goes to the Moon Pyramid at Teotihuacan, which I visited with my dad back in the 80s. The uh, equinox sunset goes through Chaco Canyon, which is an amazing ancient site in, in New Mexico. That's an amazing site. It's a national historic monument. The Equinox Sunrise goes to the Canary Island Pyramids. And um, I'm trying to think of the other one. Oh, the true south line that goes to Machu Picchu in South America, in Peru. So there are these um, lines from our site that do go to other very important ancient sites, usually the UNESCO World Heritage Sites, basically, you know, like Stonehenge. So that's, that's something that's kind of hard to explain. It could be a coincidence. We have to kind of consider that. But they're right on the money, too. You know, it's like, wow. You know, it's kind of... Some people believe in sacred geometry and energy points of the world and, like, Stonehenge would be on, the pyramids in Egypt, that kind of thing. So they have drawn maps of the world and sometimes where our site is included in it of a power, kind of a intersection of many of these points coming together. I think it's
3: fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it's just how so many places... <laughs> connected actually by those lines and um, and whilst I think many people so an example would be would be people who are going out and they're doing for want of a better phrase ghost hunting they will um, often refer to their lines without really understanding the history behind that and how so many different places link and of course in um, in your area in Salem that's that's known for um, it's kind of paranormal um, and many of these archaeological sites also have sites, lo- you know, local to them. Mm. One thing is that um, you know, England is 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 very well known for, and I'm sure you're very aware of this, is its folklore and the legends of King Arthur, and mm. um, and that's also linked to Stonehenge. Um, and we know in um in fact, um, I think it was al and I actually wasn't it al who interviewed um a gentleman on the myths of King Arthur, which was a fascinating in- interview, so we know that actually Stonehenge itself will have not been um attributed to the king himself, but um he still um contributes to the folklore around it, and it's just so amazing how these these monuments they they are there through history, and the stories just continue to grow around them and, and and just hope really that one day we don't lose track of all of those stories as, as time evolves.
4: Some of those stories are beautiful the way they tell them too, you know, I think with Merlin and Stonehenge and all of that, it's just, it, 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 it's so neat when you read them, you know, it kind of chills you back a little bit, you know, um, and, um, and there's more to learn about our site, obviously about some of the past. Unfortunately, a lot of the You know, a a lot of the Native Americans, because of diseases and such, you know, died in the area, you know, after the, uh, you know, the um, colonization, you know. So some of those tales are probably we can still discover some of that, you know, Um, some of the myths and legends of these sites, you know. But I think that Paula Ronda one is one that's pretty good, you know. Um, But, yeah, the ley lines and all of that. And I actually have a 1927 book by Alfred Watkins, you know, and I believe it was printed in London or something and it's one of the original copies uh, the old straight track I think was the name of the book you know so it was my dad's collection I'm like oh that's kind of neat I didn't know he had that you know so going through my dad's I'm still going through all my dad's you know almost 60 years worth of research all his books and everything I'm discovering some really cool stuff including one book from eighteen thirty uh, 35 because the family that was up there were actually part of the uh, abolitionist movement helping the slaves move up to Canada and um, he actually um, just before he Jonathan Patty, who's a shoemaker, yeah, a fifth-generation shoemaker, and his great-great-grandfather came from England. But um, before that, he was involved with the um, taking in the town paupers, the poor people, and we have actually the actual written town records, and I, it's an original copy, all handwritten, and he got paid, to many, many people in Salem did this to help out the poor, and they got paid actually by the town to do this, and I actually got from 19, 1831 to 1836 when he took in some of the town poor people, and by 1983, uh, 1837, that was the last year he did. And I think that's when he began taking in the slaves as part of the Underground Railway as they were trying to, trying to escape again out of the South heading up towards Canada to freedom, you know. So our site has a lot of history, too. So it's historical and prehistorical, too.
3: And you never stop learning, do you? I mean, the Stonehenge um, Hidden Gate Project here continually finding new new uh, associations with Stonehenge and similar sites and um, around Barrow has been uh, in 2010. Um, And and they continue to develop it. And of course, with that comes a lot of protection as well, because as you rightly said earlier, as soon as you open something up, that's it. It's there, it's open to the elements, it's open to damage. How do you protect Hmm. your site?
4: Yeah, I mean, we do the best we can. Um, you know, it was uncovered during the 1930s, and some preventative maintenance has gone on over the years, to, you know, not only to protect the structures but also the uh, visitors, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So it's an ongoing process on the site. Some of the stones sometimes come loose. We have a couple of guys. Unfortunately, one of our gentlemen, Dr. David Stewart Smith, he was with us from 1978. He just passed away two years ago, and uh, he was a real resource and asset to our place. Um, he's the one that really did a lot of work the way the stones were quarried, shaped, transported, you know, and he, he actually, you know, he actually wrote that up, he, he published that, and he, he even had the state, uh, New Hampshire state archaeologist, who was also a doctor of anthropology and archaeology, verify a lot of his work, you know. But Dave had spent six years prior to that working for the British government, uh, doing repair work on medieval Structures and megalithic sites in Europe, you know, some of the, not all the 50,000, but quite a few of them. And he would pick out pictures and say, Oh, yeah, I worked in that chamber and I worked in that chamber. So he had a really nice uh, understanding and a lot of experience on both sides of the ocean. So, and I like I say, two years ago we lost him, and since we, he has passed, we have found more features. We're finding some of our walls, some of the thousands of feet of walls are actually serpentine in shape. It's shaped like a serpent with a, a head, a body, and then a tail. And uh, we're not the only site. We're finding the same thing in Connecticut. There's one town with over 80,000 features. We think they're prehistoric. There's chambers very similar to our site, standing stones, carns, dolmens, which are big rocks with legs. And, you know, dolmens in England and they Ireland are all over the place over there. Um, and also serpentine walls. And that one town has over 400 serpentine walls. And you look at them, like a pictures of them, and they're like, oh, my God, that is a serpent. It's got a serpent head. Sometimes it's a glacial boulder, and they actually touched it up with like an eye and a nose. But it's the wall behind it, the undulating wall that goes up and down and runs either 30 feet, in some cases up to 300 feet, and has a tail. Some of the walls get fat, like maybe a serpent ate its prey. Uh, and some of them are linear or straight. Some are rectilinear, like a snake, you know, with its head bent or its tail bent. And some are curved, beautiful-shaped curves. And our site has about 12 of these. And, again, they run about 30 feet. And our longest one goes 2,500 feet and circles the main site. I mentioned that's about a one-acre area. But this is actually outside of that, and it would contain about 15 acres or maybe close to 20 acres. And it's a serpent with a gigantic glacial boulder head. The wall under the behind it, up and down. And then it goes around, and it touches every astronomical uh, sunrise, sunset, or star monolith. It touches every one of them, and it comes back in front of itself, and then it looks like it does one more hump, and it looks like the serpent biting its tail, which is uh, called the Ouroboros. And uh, the Greek, Egyptian, you know, mythology uh, it represents eternity, that symbol of the snake biting its tail. But it seems yeah. to be a worldwide thing, too. you probably heard of that, you know? It's kind of neat. Mm
3: isn't it? I mean, the, the, you could go anywhere with this subject. I was just, when uh, we first came up, I was talking about um, how our Stonehenge is now um, roped off to avoid people going in and touching the stones um, because of, well, just over overuse and, and vandalism and wearing them away. And they um, that went before the Court of Human Rights because, um, obviously, um, it's an it's an ancient site of worship. So the Court of um, Human Rights said, well, actually, anybody who's, who's got a genuine religion has the right to worship in their own place. So therefore, with um, neo-Druids, pagans and other earth-based or old religions, they should be able to, um, to worship at the summer solstice or, or the winter solstice. And I was just reading a fact that over 30,000 people attended the gathering at the stones at the summer solstice in t- 2003.
4: Wow. 30, that's, a,
3: people. that's about, that's
4: about what we did during the course of a year. So we don't have the, um, wear and tear quite as Stonehenge, um, uh, you know, you get a million people there a year. It does, it, you know, so it's kind of a balance, I guess, you know, letting people get in or protecting the site. I guess it's kind of a, in one of those balancing things, you know, and so far at our site, uh, the stone is granted very, very hard and we have signs of please don't touch anything, uh, respect the site. Leave only, you know, leave, take take. uh Don't take anything but memories with you or photographs. You know, don't. And people go, like to take stuff. You know, that's what happened mm-hmm. at Stonehenge. You know, people are chipping away the stones, as you mentioned. We don't want that. You know, leave it alone. Don't touch it. Look at it. Respect it. Um, so people can walk among our ruins. You know, we have a couple little areas because it might be a little dangerous because of a roof slab cave into one chamber, things like that. That we keep the public away from. You know, and we don't want them on the chambers either because that does cause wear. You know. Terror somebody can injure themselves too. But, um, yeah, so we we're open for the solstices, you know. We stay open morning and evening for those so people can come up to you and get a real experience, you know, of the whole thing. And it's that's our popular days. I think the most we had for our, one of our solstices was just over 1,000 people. So not too bad, you know, for a place that's not too well known.
3: Um, and what happens at something like that? Because, you know, obviously when you have mm. a, an ancient place that um, is attractive to people, Quite often, people turn them into attractions. So here in North Wales, we've got Arthur's Labyrinth, for example, where you go underground and you explore the chambers that King Arthur allegedly um, laid in um, and was put to rest in. So do you see anything like that happening with your Stonehenge? Do you do you cater for um, as an entertainment at any point in the year? Um, I'm not sure the question.
4: Um uh, well, how, could you say that a different way, maybe? Or?
3: Yeah, so, so do you, um, that's one thing I'm very good at, Dennis, is waffling. Okay, when I ask you <laughs> <this laughs> questions.
4: Oh, no uh, problem. I wasn't sure which angle you were going at. So, yeah, uh, if you could, yeah. I
3: guess it's about, do you do you adapt it being a raw um, historic site to cater for people who want more of a, an entertainment? So to put on, I oh. don't know, is it live- are there events there? Is, is something more entertaining rather than just people being able
4: to oh, go? I think, yeah, we have, I'm not sure I'm going to answer your question correctly. We do have um, weddings that take up place up there, but they're, it's kind of low key. The people really like the site, you know, they respect it. And the weddings, you know, I think the best one we had was between 50 and 100 people up there. So we do a few weddings, you know, and, they, you know, and it's very respectful. Um, we do have the celebrations for the solstices and equinoxes. Um, and, uh, we have occasionally people come up there and, you know, they'll, they'll have their birthdays or things like that at our site and i will have a little party, but we don't illuminate the site. Like some of the places I know, um, we've been to the Parthenon and, uh, I think, uh, chicken, each of the, the temple there, they light it up, although it looked pretty spectacular for a light show, you know, it's a nighttime event that, uh, And I haven't been there for about 20 years in Mexico, but uh, there's a couple other places like that around the world. Maybe the Sphinx does that, too, where they illuminate it at night with different colors and lasers and stuff like that. We haven't done anything like that. But we do host different events up there, and we do snowshoeing in the winter. We open up all the trails around the entire hilltop, and we do have snow right now. And the snowshoe trails are open, and it's a beautiful walk through the woods and snowshoes. You know, we go down by the glacial cliff shelter, where we did find pottery that dates back about 2,500 years. It's Native American, Middle Woodland period. And that's the only time of the year we let people go out there because we don't want people climbing up in there causing damage, as you mentioned, you know, and people people's curiosity get the better of them. And there is probably still more pottery out there, you know, and one the time it's covered with a blanket of snow and it protects it, you know, it's frozen, you know, which is good. But in the summer, they could get up there and they could hurt themselves because it's very steep and they could take artifacts away a few years ago, we got a bag in the mail, and people had been on that excavation in 1959. That's one of the excavations my dad worked on. And they sent us back pieces of pottery that they had pocketed, and they kept for like 55 years. And they finally found, felt guilty, and they sent it back to us in the mail. So that was good. That's a good thing you know? But that can happen. <laughs>
3: So, I mean, you must be incredibly proud of this, um, I suppose, legacy in, in many ways that your dad began for your family to yeah. be involved in yeah. this historic site. What, what's next for you guys as a family? How do you see this progressing? How do you see your protection of the site going forward?
4: Well, we're going to be doing a forest management service uh, to the whole hilltop. Uh, that lady that was the archaeologist, and she's still with us, Um, In the 90s, she spent six years, and she mapped the hilltop geologically, and her husband was a doctor of geology at Tufts University in Boston, so he was a doctor of geology. What she says, the hilltop was pretty bare 4,000 years ago, Uh, 25% glacial soil and soils. The other part of it was pretty much bare bedrock, and that made it easy for the quarry crews in the ancient times, hey, we need some rock slabs. Can you go out and find areas where we can lift up the bedrock? And so they could go out there, and today they'd have a devil of a time because it's covered with trees and forest and except where we cleared out the avenues to witness you know the solstices and equinoxes which are hundreds and hundreds of feet of tree clearing. Um, the other thing is we have a whole network of underground drains covering the main site. Some of the drains are up to seventy five feet. They're parallel walls with little capstone and they're just like a storm drain in the city. You know, and the water goes through a cutout in the bedrock and then it'll channel into this underground drains and this about twelve biggest ones about seventy five feet long. And we said, why would they go to all this trouble? And they did it before they built all the chambers around. You know, it was one of the first things they engineered because the structures are built above ground. drain. Well, it's probably because the hilltop, again, was bare, and the site was pretty bare. So when it rained and when snow melted, it would puddle up, so they had a whole system of channeling the, the water away. When the paddies lived there for for a while, there was still plenty of dirt. It would absorb the rainwater. The other thing, without trees on top of the hill, except for small and a, you know a small amount of them, you could see all the alignments with the rising and setting. Today we have a forest problem, but at Stonehenge today when you go out there, it's pretty open. You know, you have a few trees in England on the Salisbury Plain. Um, but yes. I understand 5,000 years ago you had a forest there, so you had a forest problem, and they used up a lot of the yeah. forest. We had the opposite. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry?
2: Oh, I don't know what happened there. She must have got cut. <laughs>
4: Oh, I know. She was saying something. I know. I, she, she cut out a couple of times. Um, we are going to be using modern technology. There's a thing called optically stimulated luminescence, and you can actually date dirt. You get a core next to one of our stone chambers, like a wall down low, or you get uh, dirt next to one of our thousands of feet of walls. Maybe we could do multiple tests, and you send it to a laboratory, this core, and you get it down deep. And they can tell you how long that dirt has been sitting next to the wall. So you build the wall on bedrock and then very slowly soil accumulates. Right now it's about an inch every hundred years in New England. In the past it was a slower rate because you would have the vegetation, you know, falling on the dirt as much, you know, rotting. And the windblown soil has always been there. So we're going to try to do that. It's very expensive. It's over a thousand dollars per core and you have to have some baseline cores around it. One chamber they did in Massachusetts Everybody said 200, 300 years old, the mainstream, historical, archaeological people. Well, the minimum date on it came out. They did the test, uh, 2011. They got the results back just a couple of years ago. University of, uh, Colorado, I think, Denver did it, if I am not mistaken. And it was a woman that did the whole thing. And it was very, very, very complicated what they do. But anyway, the date came back on this chamber about 1480 AD. And that's not when the chamber was built. It's when it was already sitting there. So the chamber may have been sitting there not 200 years ago, but over 600 years ago. It's one of these chambers that looks like a beehive. It looks like a passage wave in England or other European sites, like an igloo shape. And it's aligned with the Pleiades and a solstice, actually, the uh when you walk into it. Like I said, it's got a long tunnel. Um, so it's one called surface uh, luminescence. And you can actually date a structure without doing any invasive thing like putting a hole in the ground. And you can get a direct date on the structure. So this is even something even, even I think even better. And if we can afford it and find the people that can do this kind of dating, we can start to date some of the stone walls and some of the chambers where they haven't been disturbed by anybody. And again, it's called um, uh, it's called surface luminescence, and it's something brand new. And we are also doing thermal imaging with drones and aircraft of our site. Eventually, we're going to have a one square mile 3D image of the site using high definition color cameras. And a thermal imaging camera. We have a gentleman that moved in from the west coast and he's been doing this part time for us. So, and you can actually see things about 14 inches into the ground. So, if something's hiding, you know, we might, it might get, you know, it may uh, actually show up on the images. I and mean, when you walk on the ground, you won't see anything, but on the images, be something there, we could do a shovel test pit and test it to see if there's in fact something below the surface that should be looked at.
2: Just wow, amazing. that's really, yeah. Now, now, let's talk about your, um, Communications now, so you've got everything from an app to a website to Facebook. Uh, how about uh, letting the listeners know how to get a hold of you?
4: Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, we have a website, com, and it has a few photographs. It has a um, calendar of events like the solstices and equinoxes, and it has an email address in there. So if they want to contact us, info at StonehengeUSA, it's there. And also, we have a Facebook page, and we do Instagram. I let my daughter-in-law handle a lot of that. But I think <laughs> we have uh, close to 10,000, I think, Facebook followers. And, um, you know, so we keep up on these. Uh, we put things in there like other. We have a site down the road, we think, that looks similar to our site, about six miles away. we got some photographs. It totally took us by surprise about a week and a half ago. Now we've got to get landowner permission to go over there, take some photographs, look at it. But the images we got back my son. It's a, my son's friend that actually got the pictures. I'm like, oh my God, that looks just like us. You know, it has chambers like us and some sculptured stones, standing stones and other features. So something like that would go into our Facebook and web page. If there's some new discovery, you know, we'll put it up there too. So StonehengeUSA.com is our web. And uh, so if they have any questions, uh, there's a phone number there too. And they can even give us a call if they, if they want to talk to us.
2: And and what about your new app?
4: Yeah, oh, yeah thank you. Yeah, it's under America's Stonehenge, and it's an app, and it has pictures, it has um, uh, audio, and it has text, so you can actually use it at our site on the tour, and we have a four-page tour guide map that we've been using since the 1960s, although we updated, we got to do a little more update because we found some serpentine walls and windows, but that app is excellent, and you can use that at home, too, like after the show, if you want to check out what the, the place looks like, you can go into America, Stonehenge. Yeah, Android or Apple, and, um, and it, you'll see our symbol come up. It's a sun setting over a stone, and just click onto that, and it will take just a few seconds to download, and then you can do a tour of our site, basically.
2: Wow. Well, Dennis, mm-hmm. it's been a fascinating hour. Um, our guest has been Dennis Stone, and we've been talking about the Stonehenge USA. Um, thank you for coming on the show.
4: So thank you so much uh, I really appreciate both of you and if we ever have anything new we'll let you know and um, I can we can talk about uh, you know some of the new discoveries coming up for sure
1: to find out more about our show
4: guests or to listen to past
1: shows from our archive please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com
5: Show's over for now was it as good for you as it was for me
3: well good night